All right, let's have Homer's Iliad 2019, Lecture 22, Books 17 to 19 today. There are three major things we're going to focus on today. Fight over Patroclus' body and Achilleus' armor. Second, the creation of Achilleus' new armor by Hephaestus and his very, very famous shield. I will go into detail uh, uh, what is on his shield, and I will explain what that is. There's a sort of literary device where... An author attempts to describe a work of art in words. It's called ekphrasis, and we'll go through that a little bit. And then we will finally get to a major point in the book, a turning point in the book, uh, uh, where Agamemnon and Achilleus finally reconcile, which means Achilleus will then return to the battlefield. So, let's get to it. Book 17. Brief summary of what ends up happening. So, as I've told you before, whenever a minor character strikes, injures, or kills a major character, that minor character is doomed and is going to be killed very, very soon. Well, we recall that when Patroclus, a major character, was killed, he was injured by two mortal men and one immortal god. Obviously, that immortal god, Apollo, is not going to be killed, especially not by any sort of mortal like Menelaus. Hector is a big-time major character, so he's not yet going to die, but he will die soon enough, so says Zeus. But there was a minor character who was involved in the striking and killing of Patroclus, and that was Euphorbus, that young man who had killed 20 men so far, who would not withstand the uh, the might of Patroclus, even after having stabbed him in the back. And well, Euphorbus runs into a major character named Menelaus, and Menelaus, in the first 83 lines of Book 17, kills Euphorbus. So he doesn't have very long to glory after his kill of Patroclus, the mighty Myrmidon, the mighty Achaean. And well, something terrible happens now for the Achaeans. Hector strips Patroclus' corpse of Achilleus' armor, which means Achilleus no longer has armor. Too bad for him, which means he can't come into the battlefield uh, at the moment. In fact, there will be a moment later today when we see Iris go down to Achilleus and tell him to go out in front of the battle. And Achilleus will argue with her. He'll say, well, I can't go into the battle because I don't have any armor. The only person who has armor that Achilleus could wear that's not his own it's not even armor, actually. It's Aias the Greater's shield. Supposedly he could hold Aias' shield, but Aias is using Aias' shield, so Achilleus uh, will have to go out in front of the battlefield essentially wearing uh, just his normal clothes, and he'll do something there that's rather outrageous. I, I think you'll soon see that everything that Achilleus does is extreme. Um, in any case, Aias and Hector, Aias the Greater, of course, then fight Yet again, lines 304 to 315, but neither scores a hit over Patroclus' body. And during that time, Hector, or right after that time, Hector and Aeneas try to capture Achilleus' immortal horses. Remember, they're Xanthos, they're Balios, they're immortal. It'd be like stealing a Ferrari and a Porsche. And it'd be a good day for the Trojans to get those horses. That said, they are not going to get those horses because Achilleus' charioteer, Automedon, I still need to get you that picture of him taming these horses, has his Aristea. Remember that an Aristea is a period of preeminence or glory on the battlefield. Generally, uh, one has one's Aristea when one is killing one's foes in the Iliad. In any case, Automedon fights them off. Athena strengthens Menelaus and Aias the Greater during all of this. You should have an, a sense that there's a lot of confusion and fighting going on right now. Remember, everybody wants, uh, the Trojans want Patroclus' corpse, even though it has a uh, uh, the armor has been stripped from it. In fact, uh, I, I believe it is uh, the case that Hector would like to put Patroclus' head on a pike, but that is not going to happen because Menelaus first sends Antilochus 
to give Achilleus the bad news about his friend. So that's the first thing that happens. Um, you should imagine that this is the worst job you could possibly be given. To go tell Achilleus that his best friend has just been killed, almost surely you would imagine that he would attempt to strike you, possibly even cut your throat at giving him such terrible news. Though we have seen that he is pretty good with heralds. Recall that when um, Talthibius and Idias, or, or Euripides, I'm forgetting which in this case, were sent down to him in book one to take Perseus from him, then he was kind to them, even though he was obviously very upset. In any case, Antilochus is given a terrible job. Though he is a son of Nestor, so he is wise, so perhaps he will deal with this job and th these new responsibilities intelligently. In any case, Aias then commands Menelaus and Morianes to take Patroclus' body back to the Achaean ships. That means that his body will be saved. That is a good thing for Patroclus, that is a good thing for Achilles, and that is a good thing for the morale of the Achaeans. Even though they've just lost this great man, they have won this small skirmish. In any case, the Iontes will continue to hold back the Trojans as they have been doing ever since Book 12. They've been doing an excellent job. All right, Book 18. Antilochus brings news of Patroclus's death to Achilles, but he's very smart. He doesn't just outright tell him. What he does is something physical. He, he goes up to him, and this sounds like something that you would do when you were trying to console somebody for grief. He goes up to him, and he holds his hands. And we think, oh, that's a very kind thing to do. You know, a little bit of physical contact, let some neurotransmitters like, um, uh, I'm forgetting exactly what the name, ah, yes, oxytocin be released. Supposedly, you know, when you, you have a nonviolent physical touch with somebody, this is why people hug each other, you release a, a hormone that decreases your physical pain. And, um, well, that's sort of interesting. In any case, that's not why Antilochus holds the hands of Achilles. He doesn't hold the hands of Achilles. Achilles can take his sword and cut Antilochus's throat, which, in a moment of tremendous, painful emotion, like he must be overwhelmed by in hearing that his best friend, because of his decision, has just died in his armor, well, perhaps Achilles unreasonably would then strike Antilochus, strike him with a blade, strike him dead. Antilochus does not want that eventuality to happen. And so he holds the hands of Achilles, and he is not killed. He will, sadly, later be killed after the events of the Iliad during, uh, during the events of the Trojan War. In any case, Achilles, when he hears this news, he freaks out. He, he rolls in the dust, he tears out his hair. This will not be the only person we see roll in the dust and tear his hair. Soon we will see Priam doing the same thing for a very similar reason, in fact. It, it seems, I think, like an unreasonable thing to do to tear one's hair out and to disfigure one's face with dust. But if you think about what people do when they are feeling emotional, it is, it is, it is not uh, uncommon for people to pull at their hair. That's for sure. That's for sure. In any case, he is deeply, deeply, deeply upset. All right. So, Iris then goes down to the battlefield to talk to Achilles. Um, she, she says that you need to help Menelaus and Marianes get Patroclus' body back to the camp. There, there's still fighting going on. The Trojans still very much want that body. Some maybe even think it's still Achilles' body. They're fighting very hard for that. They need some support. Achilles says, I can't support them. I don't have my armor. I can't go, I can't arm myself and go out and fight. So Iris says, maybe all you need to do is show yourself to the Trojans. And you should think about just how much Cleos 
uh, character should have just to be able to show himself and to cause enough fear to stir the Trojans or to keep the Trojans from winning the body of his friend. All he has to do is make an appearance. And so, he does. He steps out in front of the battlefield, and then Athena helps him out a little bit. She puts a flame behind his head, so it looks like he has a halo. It looks like he's like an angel of death, in a way. And uh, she puts the Aegis behind him. And remember the Aegis, that crazy shield with like the living Medusa face on it with the snake hair that causes terror in people that see it? So people see like this living angel of death with a Medusa head behind it, and they all feel great awe and terror at seeing Achilles. Bang, there he is. He's still around, and he's scary, and he screams. And I don't even know how to, to make this scream, because I can't scream like he does, because he screams three times. Ah! 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 And during this scream, people are so shocked, especially on the chariots. They turn around, their horses get caught up, their reins get messed, the chariot overturns, they fall onto their own spears. Twelve men die during these three cries. Twelve men die. I mean, just imagine being in the underworld, even though the shades are sort of mindless in the Homeric underworld. And people are like, oh, you know, uh, how'd you die? And it's like, well, Achilles screamed in my face, and then I, I perished. Uh, <laughs> the idea is not that they all had heart attacks because they were scared of him, but that would be, I think, an even more epic idea. Like, you hear him screaming, you're like, nope. <laughs> Supposedly, that is why people die when they defenestrate. You say, what does defenestrate mean, Mr. Smith? I mean, jump off a building, or jump out of a window, technically. And uh, supposedly what kills people is the fear of hitting the, the earth rather than the earth itself sometimes. They have heart attacks. I, I wouldn't recommend testing that out, though. It's like, you're still dead at the end of it. Uh, or horribly mangled. Neither seems like a very good outcome. In any case... The Trojans have an assembly. This is uh, one of those moments that I told you about earlier where Pulidamus, the great counselor to Hector, the field advisor, gives him good advice and he does not follow it. Well, Pulidamus has just seen Achilles scream <laughs> in front of the battlefield. And 12 men have perished. And Pulidamus kind of puts two and two together here and is like, uh, that must mean Achilles is coming back, which must mean that we should get back in the city so he does not kill all of us. Very reasonable position, because before Achilles had left the battle, the Trojans had never left the city because Achilles would kill all of them. And so, he's given good advice, very reasonable advice. That said, remember, Hector has been very inflated. He's had a good battle so far. He, he started to think that maybe, maybe it's not just the will of Zeus that's helping him be successful. Maybe he's just a really great fighter. Maybe... If, even if Achilles comes back, he could still stand a chance against him. Not the case, but that is the sort of thought that you might entertain after success, after success, after success. Perhaps you would think that you were invincible. Perhaps you would think that you would never lose. That will not be the case for Hector. His reasoning is deeply flawed. He foolishly declines the advice of Pulidamus. He and the Trojans will pay very dearly for staying outside of the walls of Troy. In fact, bless you, uh, there will be so many Trojans killed by Achilles that he will dam a river. <laughs> Which is, I, I shouldn't laugh at that, but it, I mean, it's just incredible. In any case, Achilles needs armor if he's going to dam the river with bodies. And so, Thetis, his mother, we know that he is a mother's boy. Whenever he has a problem, he goes to mom. Agamemnon took my concubine. Mom, hurt the Achaeans for several books and lead to the death of my best friend. He didn't know about that second part. 
But you should think about the fact that his request to Thetis is what directly, well, I suppose, uh, directly over time leads to the death of his friend. And so you might say that he is himself responsible for the death of his friend. I don't know what you wrote about yesterday or if you've answered that seminar question yet, but that is a perspective you could take. In any case, Thetis now says, oh, honey, you need, your best friend just died? Well, you need some new clothes. You need some new armor so you can go avenge him. So she goes up to the, the Gucci of armor making. This is the best armor maker. He is the god of armor makers, the god of the smith, the god of the fire, the, as the Halloween tree said, the old forgotten god of fire, but he's not forgotten yet. This is Hephaestus. He just goes up to his workshop, and when she gets there, it's actually a very magical place, and perhaps um, uh, you, you might think of it like you think of Santa Claus's workshop, which is obviously based on this. An old guy who makes, uh, you know, an old guy in a remote place that's sort of like a heaven, that makes gifts for people that they don't deserve. It's like, yeah, uh, yeah, and has some helpers, too. Well, he has helpers. They're not elves, though. Apparently, he's such a gifted maker of things that he's actually created robots, which is a Yiddish word for slave, uh, or androids, which means a, a, a robot which is human figure. There are golden androids that are helping him out. He has made life and conscious life that can think. And so if you're, like, say, a science fiction aficionado and you like watching things with AI involved or, or, uh, uh, or androids involved, something like Star Wars, or, you know, half the movies these days have androids in them, whether they be Marvel movies with Vision or, is that the name of the one that's an android? Yeah. Or whether they actually be more sophisticated movies like She, which came out recently with uh, Joaquin Phoenix in it, which is where, like, a, an operating system becomes the girlfriend of a guy. <laughs> Which sounds funny, but how many of you have phones that you're attached to at all times and spend more time with than other people? Right. Exactly. All of you, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. In any case, uh, technology. We're very interested in it, and Hephaestus is very good at making it. And 2,000 years before we ever could even think about creating something like a robot, he had already done it. So, good job, God of Smithing Hephaestus. Um, he agrees to make the new armor for Thetis. And, you know, something else you should know about Thetis is apparently she knows who to do favors for. Remember that Zeus is willing to do a favor for her because she had once helped unbind him when three gods had bound him and uh, essentially uh, been about to take his power, as far as we know, according to Homer. Well, when Hephaestus, remember how he got thrown off Olympus by Zeus when he tried to protect his mom from getting beaten by Zeus? And we all thought he was a pretty good guy for that. Well, he definitely got punished for that. And he got thrown off of Olympus, and he fell ah, for nine straight days, apparently. Pretty long drop from Olympus. And then he fell on this island called Lemnos. That's either what busted his leg, or he was born like that. We don't know, but it makes it sadder if you say that that's what busted his leg. And then Thetis pops up out of the sea, your sister, your enemy, and they spend ten years putting him back together. Ten years. And so, Hephaestus has a lot of affection. For Thetis. So when she pops in to see him, says, hey, take a seat. Whatever you want, I will give to you. Thetis says, okay, I want some armor. And so, Hephaestus sets about to making it. You don't need to write this quite yet. I'll give you, I'll have you write er, this. I just want you to look at it. Take a look at this. And just let your eyes fall over. This is a schematic of the shield of Achilles, and there are parts all over it. There is uh, the earth and the sky. Two cities, one at peace, one at war, the activities of country life, plowing, reaping, further scenes of country life, more cattle, sheep, a dance, and the river ocean on the outside. 
Uh, so uh, a lot of times when I describe just all that's on this shield, people say, how can there be so much on the shield? Well, you notice it's in concentric circles. That's how you represent motion and uh, activity on a shield like this. And in fact, this is called ekphrasis. This is the first time in literature that a description of art is given, an extended description of art. This is something that each epic writer you will read after this will attempt to do. Virgil, when you read the Aeneid by him, will attempt to do this with the Temple of Juno. Welcome, sir. Just take a seat. All right. We'll see Dante do the same thing when he gets to the Purgatorio, when he describes art. You might imagine that is sort of an ultimate achievement for a wordsmith or a poet. Because as you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. That means it's easy to see a picture with your eyes, but it's hard to describe a picture with your words. Well, if you're a poet, you're supposed to be the most gifted person with words possible. You're supposed to be able to create a picture in someone's mind with words. In fact, that is the entire uh, art of speech and of storytelling. In fact, while I'm speaking now, if you are focusing, you are probably imagining things that I am saying, and you're probably imagining differently from the people around you, and when you describe what you imagine to them, they might even disagree. And that's sort of uh, the art of being a human in some ways. So, take another look at this non-schematic, very interesting. You can see the stars and the cosmos on the inside, the river, ocean on the outside, people at war, people at peace, all sorts of things. There are more images, just like this one, black and white. There are some beautiful colored images as well. There is an attempt at a recreation in a museum in Europe. I can't remember exactly which one. I can look that up for you as well. It's just very intricate, very beautiful. Hmm. All right, so a little bit of analysis of this shield. What's going on? Why do we get this long page and a half description of this shield? Well, let's lay it out. At the center of the shield are the heavens and the stars. So that's one limit of it. At its edge is the river ocean. Remember that the Greeks believed, sort of like the ancient Hebrews, that there was a giant ocean surrounding the world, just sort of like the ancient Hebrews believed that there was in the firmament, that's the sky, uh, another ocean. And that's why it rained out from the sky, that there must have been some sort of river above. And, you know, that makes pretty good sense. They didn't know about, you know, the fact that, well, they did seem to know, but they didn't have scientific account for how uh, water evaporates into the air, creates clouds, then uh, condenses again and comes back down to the earth. That sort of, uh, it takes some very good science to understand that sort of thing. In fact, you know, it's hard for me to understand that thing even with the science. And yet it happens. This seems to mean if the shield is bounded by the sea and the stars, the shield itself is supposed to represent the entirety of the human cosmos, the entirety of the human world, the entirety of the human experience, because your world is bounded by your experience. Which is why people say you need to travel, try new foods, and meet new people. Uh, and something well worth thinking about. Between these two extremes exist two cities. Cities are the natural environment of people. People come together, they communicate in cities, they lay down their laws, and they produce food, eat food together, and go to see each other. Cities are humans' natural environments. That's why we have them. And within these two cities, there are two ways of going about your business. You can do it peacefully. You can be, uh, and even something you notice in your reading is, even in the city of peace, it's not fully at peace. A murder has just happened, and there's a judicial system there. So apparently, just because you're at peace doesn't mean you're always at peace, and it takes uh, something difficult like having judges and a justice system in order to maintain peace. As we know, uh, Agamemnon and Achilleus could have used a third-party moderator. But there are also cities at war as well. And Athena's fighting 
Ares is fighting humans, though they come together in cities, maintaining peace, very, very difficult. Easiest thing in the world to get into conflicts with people, as you know, if you have a sibling. Alright, in any case, that is what this shield is supposed to represent. The entirety of human life, the entirety of the human cosmos, as represented uh, um, by our experience. And so, uh, you don't need to write this. I don't even know if I want to say this. I think I'll say it quickly. The scenes of country life explain how humans function. They plow, or sow, or plant seeds, cultivate them, and then harvest their foods. This happens at a natural level, but also at a metaphorical level. Just like you study that sowing seeds of thought. Then you cultivate or groom your knowledge, uh, which means like you write about it, you think about it, you take a seminar about it. It's a little bitty, like sort of baby thought, and then you let it grow. You let it grow into something incredible. Maybe it will be like a course like this at some point. Like, and you know, my seed has grown into uh, a redwood. And then you reap the rewards of your efforts. You don't really need to know this, but this is, if you like to think about things, this is something well worth thinking about. In any case, the armor is made. Hephaestus is done. Mwah, voila, he's done it again. This is the best armor that's ever existed. It's even made of gold. Like, wow, it looks like a god would wear it. In fact, I've actually got a great picture for you here. Don't stare too much at it. I, it might burn you. Uh, <laughs> this, is not, this is not an ancient picture of uh, Achilles, by the way, but I just thought that this did a good job of showing you how we would probably imagine him. He's handsome, he's tall, he's strong, he's wearing gold. And so, the armor is presented in Book 19 to Achilles. In fact, no other Myrmidon can even look at it. They're like, ah, that's freaky stuff. But when Achilles looks at it, his eyes glitter like sun flare, and he is filled with rage. He is filled with purpose. He is going to use this armor to go kill, to go take vengeance on the person who has taken his best friend from him. He is going to go seek out, find to kill Hector, if possible, and it certainly will be possible. All right. And he and assembly is called. Notice the significant coloring of Achilles' name. We've seen him half blue, half red, indicating that he was sort of in the middle position between being an Achaean and a Trojan. On the one hand, he wasn't actively fighting against the Achaeans, but he wasn't fighting for them. On the other hand, he asked Zeus to harm his own side, which seemed like a pretty Trojan position to take. That said, now he seems to be all blue. What is about to happen? He and Agamemnon officially are going to reconcile themselves. He is going to agree to re-enter the army, the yes, the army of the Achaeans, and he is going to go kill some Trojans. And so, Achilles and Agamemnon publicly reconcile. Briseis is officially given back to Achilles. And I really ought to read this to you. But um, uh, we can do that a little bit later. Briseis and Achilles actually get to share a moment when she gets back to him where they both cry for the death of Patroclus. And she reveals that Patroclus is actually a very kind-hearted individual. Now, we've seen him be kind. He obviously cared about his friends. And that's why Nestor's words could affect him and get him to wear the armor of Achilles. He obviously tended to the wounds of Euphorbus, or excuse me, not Euphorbus, Eurypolis, his wounded friend, wounded by Paris. And he obviously argued to go fight even when Achilles would not. He cares. And, well, when Briseis was taken from her home where her father was killed and her brothers and her husband, and she was probably having the worst day of her life, Patroclus made a He said something very sweet to her. He said, well, you're not just going to be a slave for your entire life. Achilles, after we win this war, is going to take you back home 
to Thea, and he's going to marry you, which must have been some comfort to her, because, you know, even though terrible to lose one's father, brothers, and uh, husband, Achilles is a major upgrade. He is, like, a superhero. It's like getting, it's like your husband dies, but you get to marry Superman. It's terrible, and you're sad, but he is Superman, you know, and so, hey, Achilles, uh, <laughs> then arms for battle, and this is such a funny scene. I hope you got to read this, because I'm not quoting it here. Achilles then tries to chew out his horses. He's blaming everybody. Yes, he actually goes up to his horses, who can talk in this moment, and uh, he's like, why did you let Patroclus die? And actually, they respond to him. And I, I might read just a small part of this to you, if I can find it very, very quickly. One of the horses actually talks back to him, and I would say he actually wins the argument. He says, it wasn't us that got Patroclus killed, and actually, you know, you're not going to be alive for so much longer, so you might not want to say those sorts of things to us, and it's kind of like, ooh, a moment for him. Yeah, actually, here, here we go, here we go. This is Achilles trying to talk smack. He says, Xanthos, Balios, Bay and Dapple, those are translations of their names, famed sons of Pojarge, that's the harpy, that's their mother. Take care to bring in another way your charioteer back to the company of the Danaeans when we give over the fighting, not leave him to lie fallen there as you did Patroclus. He says, hey, how about you make sure to bring your charioteer back this time after you go out to battle? It's like, ooh, nasty, nasty. But then Xanthos speaks back to him and says, we shall still keep you safe for this time, oh, hard Achilles. <laughs> and yet the day of your death is near. But it is not we who are to blame, but a great God and powerful destiny. For it was not because we were slow, because we were careless, that the Trojans have taken the armor from the shoulders of Patroclus, but it was that high God, the child of lovely-haired Leto, who killed him among the champions and gave the glory to Hector. But for us, we too could run with the blast of the west wind, their father, who they say is the lightest of all things, yet still for you there is destiny to be killed in force by a god and a mortal. And then, it's so funny, then he loses the ability to speak forever. When he had spoken, so the fury stopped the voice in him, but deeply disturbed, Achilles tries to talk back to his horse, but his horse can't talk anymore, so it's sort of a funny moment. In any case, Achilles tries to blame somebody that's not himself for the death of Patroclus, doesn't quite work out for him. Even his horse talks back to him. All right. Achilles is armed for battle. He has given a, uh, or been given a talking to by his horses, of all things. And so now it's time for him to go out and fight. But he has a moment of hesitation and doubt. If he goes out to fight while he's fighting, his beautiful friend Patroclus might start to rot. The flies might start to eat him. He might start to smell. And he wants to spend all the time he possibly can with his friend while he still looks like his friend, which is sort of sad. This is sort of a personal story, but I had a cat once who was my cat, and so I, I loved that cat, and he got hit by a car. He wasn't very smart. I knew it was probably going to happen at some point, and then it finally did happen. Sadly, we then had his body afterwards, and it is a, it is a weird moment when you have the body of a once-living creature immediately after it has died. It's pretty similar to the thing that you knew, but it's different. I remember petting the cat. Even though it was dead, my mom said the saddest thing, not a good thing to say to a kid. She said, maybe if you pet it enough, he'll come back to life. It's like, that's just not how life works. That's just not like, it's like, I'm crying, I'm petting the cat. He, he had a, like, scared look on his face because obviously that car was like a super bear, and it got him like a super bear would have. And, uh, well, you know, Achilles wants to spend as much time with his dead friend because now he knows he's gone. And even though he's gone, he still looks like his friend. 
He doesn't want to leave his side. So Thetis makes another promise to him. She says, listen, I'll keep the flies off him. I'll keep him from decaying. Go out and do your thing, son. And you have to understand that she's pretty resigned about this because she knows his two fates. What are his two fates? Live a long life, no glory. Live a short life, full of glory. He's chosen. He's chosen to live the short life. She knows that her son is now going to be very similar to Patroclus within the next couple days. Her son is going to be just as dead as Patroclus soon enough. And, well, that is the way that it goes for mortals. Uh, quick note. Until Book 24, Achilles is going to become less and less human, more and more inhuman. He's going to refuse to sleep. Humans need sleep. He's going to refuse to eat. Humans need to eat. He's going to be described more and more by similes and metaphors of fire. Fire is something that consumes and destroys indiscriminately. He is going to consume and, and destroy indiscriminately, except for he's not going to consume food. And, and even at one point, after he gets injured by an ambidextrous guy who can throw two spears at once named Asteropios, he is going to identify with Zeus as he maniacally uh, sort of laughs in a river while throwing a body into the river and hoping that the fishes eat that body. It's a terrible thing to throw somebody's body into a river because then the body might not be found and buried for the Achaeans. Uh, it's one of the worst ways to die for them. And so it's highly disrespectful, very dishonorable thing to throw somebody's body into the water. He will be doing that. And then he will do even worse things than that. And so he will be acting very much not like a human uh, during these next several books. Alright, good. The Achaeans then assemble and Achilles speaks first. This is where he actually makes his reconciliation with Agamemnon. Now, Agamemnon, typically, instead of accepting personal responsibility, we all know that he has some issues as a leader. Sometimes he loses courage and suggests things like, let's go back to the ships and go back home, even though it's been ten years, and I was promised by a portent that we would win this war eventually, and Achilles was obviously on our side. You know, sometimes he gets discouraged. Well, now, instead of taking personal responsibility and saying, I'm sorry, Achilles, I got upset, shouldn't have done that, he says, ah, you know, delusion. There's this god named Delusion. Delusion is a god that makes you see that which is not. Makes you see things crookedly. Makes you th see things that aren't there. And, uh, in fact, we still use this, this expression. If you're like, Mr. Schmidt, I'm never ever going to study for your class, do any homework, and I'm going to, uh, you know, get a zero on every test, and I'm going to get an A, it's like, well, that's mm, delusional. That's simply not how things work. Uh, it's like saying 2 plus 2 equals 5. It's like, mm, mm, no, no, no. In any case... Agamemnon claims that this god, Delusion, had been afflicting him for a moment. And uh, then even tells a very long story that I don't need you to know, that it again involves Heracles. And we recall hearing about Heracles and uh, 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 his journeys during uh, when Hera was attempting to seduce and successfully seducing Zeus. Well, we get more on this. Uh, I guess I'll explain it to you very quickly just because I do want you sort of to know it. But Heracles was a son of Zeus, the greatest hero ever to have existed in Greek mythology. Achilles is number dos, numero dos, number two, for all time. Now, Heracles was supposed to be a king, but Hera did not want him to be a king because he was an illegitimate son of Zeus, so she did not want the man who would be king of, essentially, the world to be an illegitimate son of Zeus because that would glory uh, Zeus, but not exactly glory Hera, which is the deep irony of Heracles' name. It means Heracleos. Glory of Hera. <laughs> Which I think is very funny because he, it's sort of the opposite of what he actually is. In any case, um, what Hera did is she made Zeus promise, whoever is born on today will be the king over Argos. And so Zeus was like, okay, Heracles is going to be born today, so I'll let him be born. Do I have this whole thing? Yeah, I have this whole thing. You can write this if you want, uh, laid out. 
Hera goes down then, stops the goddess of childbirth named Eletheia and, uh, with Heracles, and then takes that goddess of childbirth over to the mother of a man named Eurystheus. This man named Eurystheus would become king instead, even though he wasn't supposed to be king. And in fact, when Heracles does his twelve labors, he does it in the service of this king himself, King Eurystheus. So he actually achieves his twelve labors, despite Hera's attempts to make him worse, and because he is not king, which is an interesting moment of things not working out as you plan for Hera. In any case, the whole reason that story is told is that Zeus claims that delusion kept him from seeing what was happening, and because of that, he took delusion from near his head and threw her down on earth to be a scourge forever of mortals. And so that's the story that Agamemnon tells. So saying, I'm sorry, that was my bad. He tells this whole long story. So maybe memorize this story for the next time you do something wrong. In any case, in any case, he says, I was deluded by Zeus, and then he says, I'll give you all your gifts back. Now remember, who doesn't need gifts? Non-humans. Who does need gifts? Humans. We like gifts. You know, it's like Christmas time, you're like, yeah, give me the gifts. In any case, Achilles says, I don't want your gifts. I accept your apology, I suppose it is, but I don't need your gifts. I don't need food. I do need the Briseis. And then there will be an interesting little argument, actually, between him and Odysseus. Odysseus is the human par excellence. That means he's a human's human. He sleeps. He eats. In fact, you're going to see him sleep and eat during the Odyssey. And oddly enough, you're going to see that when you sleep at the wrong time, bad things happen. And when you eat at the wrong time or the wrong thing, bad things happen. Which is very much true. It's taken us a long time to learn the things to eat. And perhaps you're still learning the appropriate things to eat and just how important sleep is uh, at night. Uh, uh, probably there's a lot more for you to learn. In any case, Odysseus will argue, Achilles, even if you're not going to eat, we all need to eat because we're physical beings and we're about to fight all day. And like, if we're going to have like a 12-hour fight for our lives, we might want to eat because A, it will fuel us, and B, it's, you know, it's going to be a lot of people's last meal. And so, you want to have that. All right. That's the lecture for today.